Welcome to J-Root Radio. This is Kashmas on the air. The, my, I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmas Magazine. And tonight's show is pre-recorded. But before we begin, I just want to mention the loss of a very important person in our Flatbush community, Rabbi Shlomo Pearl, who passed away and was the via was yesterday. Rabbi Pearl was known for his ability to explain some very complicated matters in halacha in a very entertaining and and clear way to so many people for so many years now, and he just had everything on his fingertips. It was a pleasure to speak to him in learning, and a pleasure to have an association with him that I had over the years. It's a tremendous loss, and Jay Wood has been running his shows here for a long time, uh, usually very late at night on Thursday night. Uh, every, from, te- every, every Thursday morning. Oh. Every Thursday morning from uh, 9 to 10, and hopefully uh, we will continue to put it because, you know, it was so dear friend, and uh, I really, you know, that's uh, so missing so much. And I knew him personally, you know, just he gave you the feeling that, you know, you're so important. You go, you, you, I, you know, it's amazing. It's really, uh, and I, I know the, all the family and uh, our, you know, when we aired it yesterday, we we stopped our uh, songs, we start everything, and just put some special pro- program. And today we put uh, programs about, uh, you know, alachot of him, and we continue. Yes, We lost a big, big loss. You know, just it's amazing. Unfortunately, we're not. And it's, it's it's very hard to fill anybody should fill the shoes, but uh, he was very. He, it wasn't just the shiurim that he gave; it was involvement with people. When he went over and he talked to Shaila out with him, he took it seriously, and he had on his fingertips tremendous amount of information. But it was the beautiful way that he presented it that was very very unique, and why he's going to be especially missed. Tonight's program is a, a very interesting program, but it's pre-recorded because we, the only time we could get this person was that way. So please listen and enjoy. Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And uh, this is a pre-recorded show tonight, but we have a wonderful guest. My guest tonight is Ephraim Israelowitz, who is a counterpart of mine who has been giving out cautious information for uh, several decades. And uh, we came across each other very early on in the game. And he's been publishing himself. For many years he was publishing articles in a publication called the Yeshiva of Brooklyn uh, Observer, which ceased publication in 2006. And for 11 years he was doing that. We were doing a kosher article for them. And he's appeared on pages of Cautious Magazines many times over the course of these years. Now, our topic today is going to be about Cautious uh, in the summertime, in the camps, yeshivas, some a little bit about restaurants, eating out, all the kinds of questions that people deal with, and he's been helping people all these years with. So without further ado, let me, rec- let me uh, introduce everybody to Ephraim Israelowitz. Thank you for joining us. Okay. Hello, Rabbi Wickler. It's good to be here. Uh, some of you might be familiar over the years with the type of information 
I've been supplying people. However, Rabbi Wickler suggested that we should start with the specific challenges that arise in the summertime. Well, the only reason I said that is because we had a show very recently dealing with the fact that one of the major yeshivas in our area did away with the mashkiach, and uh, they, they <laughs> not a question of getting rid of the mashkiach, but they uh, disbanded the mashkiach program and decided that since there was a Shomer Shabbos, I mean, they, were, they hired a Shomer Shabbos chef, they felt they no longer needed a mashkiach. And we, I was reacting to that on my show, and I felt that uh, yeshivas and camps, even though some people think you can get away with just a from owner and a from chef, but uh, my feeling is that you need more than that. Do you agree? I agree. It's a very, very, very big mistake not to have a mashkiach in a summer camp or in a yeshiva all year round, and I'll explain to you very easily why this is so. A camp kitchen and a yeshiva kitchen is really a catering hall. They're working many hours, sometimes as much as 10 to 12 hours a day in the camp kitchen and in the yeshiva kitchen, trying to prepare three meals, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Many times, the milchigs and fleshigs are prepared simultaneously in the yeshiva kitchen or the camp kitchen. This provides a challenge that is almost never in existence in a regular catering hall. Most caterers are fleshig, and once in a while you come upon a milchiga caterer, but very rarely, even though they do exist, but it's rare to find a caterer that does both milchig and fleshig. And usually a caterer that does do both milchig and fleshig has the kitchens in separate premises or on totally separate floors. In the case of a camp kitchen or yeshiva kitchen, the milchig and fleshig preparation are a few feet away from each other. So besides the regular kashrus concerns of what are the ingredients, who checked the shipment of ingredients that came in, besides the regular kashrus concerns, that if you have workers there that are Eino Yehudim, to make sure that the laws of Bishul Yisrael and Pas Yisrael are observed properly, you now have the problem of keeping the milchig and fleshig separate, both during the cooking process and the cleanup process of cleaning the pots. This is a tremendous job, and keeping milchigs and fleshigs separate is too big of a responsibility or oil to put on the cook. The cook is very busy. He has to produce hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of portions of food in the shortest time possible. They also do want to try to get a break at some point, so they usually have to rush a little bit before they are swamped by the campers or the Talmidim. And therefore, it is too much to expect, even if you have the frumest cook, and I've seen in camps, and some yeshivas have extremely frum cooks, it's too much of expect to them to, to also deal with the ongoing process of making sure while he's taking care of the fleshigs in the fleshiga kitchen that everything is beseder in the milchiga kitchen or that one person is not accidentally bringing in a kli from a utensil from the milchiga kitchen or fleshiga kitchen, vice versa. Uh, one story that comes to mind very quickly is that one time in the camp, the chef, who was a very, very firm person, 
was busy preparing a milchaga, a milchaga meal, and a lot of work is done with hands, by the way, sometimes with gloves, sometimes without gloves, and all of a sudden they, they smelled something burning in the Fleischinger kitchen. So the cook did not take time to remove the gloves or wash their hands. He just ran in to save the chicken that was burning and with her hands took the, ki- took the chicken and started moving it around and started shifting it from the one, one utensil, one, one uh, uh, army pot they're called, to another. This is just one example of how under pressure, under pressure, even the best, most Yerish Shemayim cook could use a mashkiach. The mashkiach would have realized immediately that they have to wash their hands, and maybe the mashkiach would have chipped in time to save the chickens so that the cook didn't have to compromise running over with milchaga hands. Rabbi Israelowitz, this is very helpful in understanding a little bit about the background. You know, uh, listeners uh, to this show may not be aware that uh, Fryam Israelowitz wrote one of the classic articles that appeared in Cautious Magazine over the decades. We were looking around for it, the first one that he published uh, based upon your experiences. It was called Summertime Kashrus, and I just discovered it was from 1987. We started publishing Kashrus magazine in 1980, but 1987, summer of 1987, we first published the Summertime Kashrus, and I think we published it in different forms later on as well, and we discussed some of the other topics that you talk about as well. We, over the time, uh, my listeners should know that over the time, we did articles on fish, bakeries, uh, supermarkets, what we call supermarket time bomb, and uh, a number of other topics were taken up in the magazine. But the Summertime Kashrus is one of the most classic articles ever printed. It's very large, very, you know, all-encompassing. So much information over there. But I'm going to ask you, life has changed since 1987. Don't you feel that today we could find... I mean, I remember the old cooks that I remember from my yeshiva days, and a lot of those, those cooks... They didn't know anything. They couldn't read English. They didn't. Uh, they not. They're not very learned. Even if they were Shomer Shabbos, they they really didn't. They couldn't put it together. But wouldn't you think that in today's age, if you have a Shomer Shabbos cook, that he could handle things better than in those days? Isn't there maybe there maybe the, the Shomer Shabbos cook of today is more prepared to handle uh, the supervision of a kitchen? The answer would be yes and no. For example, one of the things you mentioned, which I mentioned in the article that was written back in 1987, <laughs> is that... Life doesn't change, it seems, the, Rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing's going uh, on. Unfortunately not. The, the cook didn't understand the significance of the O-U-D uh-huh. on the mashed potatoes. Right. And the mashed potatoes were cooked up not only in flesha dicker pots, but were served together with a delicious supper of corned beef. So in such a case... Um, some nowadays people might might spot an OUD right. on the potatoes if they can see it. It's sometimes so small that even people with excellent eyesight can hardly even recognize it's there. And sometimes and this is what I find the biggest problem: they're used to it being a part of an item. Oh, by mistake, we bought the dairy one. We thought we were buying the pyrova one. They got so used to seeing it as pyrova that they didn't even look for the for the designation. Yes, it's true. That's a very common problem. And even nowadays, when people go shopping in supermarkets, 
They're used to seeing a certain product which they assume is always parv and has been till now parv, but a change in production all of a sudden changes the labeling on it to from OU to OUD. And that's one of the functions of Kashra's magazine and the Kashra's monthly to help alert people to some of these changes in supervision. Sometimes also a product loses hashgacha. Case in point, for the faint, not so relevant to New York City, but outside of New York City, a lot of people use Philadelphia cream cheese. And the Philadelphia cream cheese always had a hashgacha on it for the years decades and years and years. decades and decades. Right. It's and one of the earliest OK certifications. Right. And all of a sudden now, because they're making a bacon product, uh, about seven or eight or nine of their flavors, which are made on the same line as the cream cheese and bacon, no longer, including their famous fat-free cream cheese, is no longer supervised. Rabbi, uh, I want Mr. Ephraim Israelowitz to realize that uh, it changed. That was, a, uh, that was true a couple of months ago, but already there was such a reaction in the street that Philadelphia decided that all the brands, all the Philadelphia cream trees is going to remain kosher, okay certified, not called Israel, except for that ham one. Wow. They're not That's they're great. Gonna yeah. They're taking care of the other lines. They're making it okay certified because the reaction from the Jewish community was so powerful. And the interesting thing is, it never even happened. It was before it happened. And the, and the little press that the OEK put out to let people know that it's no longer going to be certified, it switched things around in midstream, and the company backed down on that. They're going to do the ham. They're going to do the non-kosher. But only that product only, and all the others will have the OK. That is wonderful. And you learn a big lesson from that. And for whoever tuned in tonight, it's worth tuning in just for this, <laughs> that consumers can make a big difference if right. you just... Take the time to obviously people called or emailed, oh, must have been a, must and have plenty. it makes a difference. It pays to let your voice be heard. It's kosher consumerism, at least in America, has come become a major force in companies and what's that interesting, care. What's interesting is that probably it's all the Jewish people, because you know that kosher today isn't only Jewish people buying it. You don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levi's uh, kosher rye, you know, Jewish rye. So they, today's, in today's world, uh, probably seven-eighths of the people, the vast, vast, vast majority of people who buy kosher because they want a kosher product are not Jewish. That is but amazing. In, but, the, but in terms of this thing, I'm almost positive that the people who would react so strongly would really the Jewish kosher consumer because we are a captive audience. The other people might be buying it for health and for this and for that, whatever their concept is, you know. And, and so they, to them, buying something kosher would be very nice. We'd like to get it kosher. But it isn't something that it's a, a game changer. For us, if it's not kosher, we can't eat it. So I'm pretty sure that the people who complained were Jewish. And the interesting thing is that a major company like this buckled under and went back in. It's not everybody does that all the time. A lot of times they don't, but this time they did. Very interesting. It's very good that they, yeah. they did back down because especially outside of New York, the product is relied on 
It's not so easy to find a kosher cream cheese. Right, right. And it's not just quite finding it, but you can find it everywhere. Something like Philadelphia would be in every supermarket in the country. It's just so huge. So that kind of exposure, uh, very few kosher products, dairy products, can make, except in the Cholestam market. It's almost about, there's no Cholestam Israel products that, that get that kind of wide uh, distribution. But going back to our topic, and our topic tonight, this is Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, and my guest, uh, Ephraim Israelowitz, who was a said, counterpart of mine, giving out Kashrus information to many people over the years, writing and talking to people and answering questions on the phone, and uh, being helpful to the people in the Flatbush Jewish community for so many years, and I'm very happy to have him tonight as my guest. We were talking about the, uh, the summertime kashras and the difficulty of, of doing a uh, kosher in a, in, a, in a camp setting and some of the challenges that come up there. You know, you had a very interesting thing that I printed in the, in the magazine on, on, on this topic. You had made up a 10-point a list. Um, it's a sort of a summary at the end, but maybe we'll read it now. I, I, I'll, let, I'll give you a chance to... To, to reflect back on those ten things. Maybe you read it to our, our readers, your list of ten things. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Wickler. Basically, some of the things that must be checked in every camp kitchen and in every yeshiva kitchen is, number one, all shipments must be checked upon arrival before they're put into the storeroom. We once had an incident many, 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 many years ago that government potato rounds come with kosher OU certification and made in lard. And somehow it got mixed into the shipment, uh, the lard batch. And nobody was there to check it when it came off the truck. It went into the yeshiva fridge or freezer and they served them for supper. It wasn't until so after supper somebody looked at the box and saw that a non-kosher box got mixed in. That could be averted if there's a responsible mashkiach at the at the truck when it's unloaded. You can't expect the cook in the yeshiva or the cooking camp to drop everything in the middle of preparing a meal to meet the truck. So they tell themselves, well, I'll check it, go through it very quickly later once it's in the storeroom. But let's say things schlep and they get out late and they forget to go into the storeroom to double check, so it's there and ready to be uh, hauled out for the next meal. So a mashkiach for a camp, a mashkiach for a yeshiva has to be there when the truck arrives. He knows expect. that's part of his job, and therefore he takes it, he, he, it's worked out in his day, easier than for a cook who's doing everything under the sun. I also want to mention that the, uh, uh, some of these deliveries are so huge in terms of the volume that they'll pile the things one on top of the other on the other, and you can't even see some of the boxes in the bottom or in the si inside. They're sometimes locked in. A huge delivery, so really breaking it apart takes more than just a couple of minutes, and a lot of people would, uh, would push it off, and it doesn't always get taken care of right away. If so somebody like the mashkia has to know that's his job to make sure that he's there for it, and if somebody breaks it down when he wasn't there, he'll go run away and check out things in the storage, where, the, where the, the, the cook may have a quick cursory look at it, but he won't necessarily check things through to the, uh, the utmost degree the way a mashkia would do. Right, and it's very true, and also the shipments do not always arrive at a set time, and therefore, what's the cook supposed to do? He has a responsibility, a big responsibility, to get the meals done. 
the deliveries don't always come exactly when it's convenient for him to drop everything and go check. So without a mashkiach there, it's a recipe for disaster on the on deliveries. What's number two? Number two, the utensils have to be very, very clearly marked. And that's a very big problem because uh, some pots get very greasy and need a lot of scrubbing at the end of the day. And no matter how good they're painted, and no matter how, whatever precautions you take, the, it's going to come off. I personally would recommend, but it's, it's very difficult to do, to try to get color-coded utensils. They do manufacture them nowadays. It's just they're not available so easily for industrial size right, and pots. expensive also. But, but that, is, that is definitely what has to be done. I wonder if any company, I've spoken to some of the companies, I don't know if I, I've spoken to anybody about doing industrial size. That, that would be a very interesting thing if they would do it. Problem it really is, would help a lot. Problem is, the distribution is not that great. In other words, how many people are going to buy that huge industrial pot, which is expensive, and uh, they may have one already, they're not going to buy it for, for a long time. But, but, I, but in terms of the uh, in, in, in terms of that, I, I see that they also have now stickers that stay on pretty well. They made some. That would stickers. be very helpful, also. Another possibility is to weld something on to yeah. the pot that would be recognizable, and that would work in conjunction. That would work in conjunction with the paint that's put on. Right. You will be interested to know that for our own personal homes. There is a huge, huge, huge amount of color-coded utensils and pots that are available. Yeah. Even years ago, before, before Jewish companies got involved to provide color-coded utensils, even years ago there were comp companies that made blue pots and green pots and black and white pots. And Kalvachoma now, and there's from companies involved making the utensils, if you look around... Green, blue, and red. You can find it. So that's a big mile for a Jewish home. It's especially urgent for those people who have cleaning help that they allow into the kitchen. Now, if you would ask my humble opinion, I would say never allow non-Jewish cleaning help into the kitchen. But if you must, you better have those color-coded pots and color-coded utensils. There's a big problem that we have today. I know we still have to go through this little list, but one of the big problems that we have today in the food industry as far as I'm concerned, is exactly what you said. You know, it's very hard to get food businesses to hire from workers, Jewish even. It's, they're, they're convinced that the Jewish people, especially the from people, don't want to work hard. Jews don't work hard. They have this idea that, you know, all <laughs> physical labor yeah. will be only done by Goyim. And there are some people, I have a man who's a waiter, and unfortunately, he has to work in a non-kosher setting because in the yeshivas, not yeshivas, the, uh, the Jewish uh, caterers or whatever it is, they tend not to want to hire some of these people. I mean, you have some Jewish waiters, used to be Jewish waiters of old, but it seems that more and more the staff is becoming non-Jewish. It partially, partially has to do with dollars, but it also has to do with this prejudice that people have that Jewish people don't want to work. When you were a mashkiach, you did physical work. It's true. Yes, we used to do physical work, especially in the kashering. Right. And so, it, it really, you know, a Jew is not afraid to do physical work. I mean, maybe 
they're maybe physically stronger or used to it better. But there are a lot of Jewish people, who, especially religious people, who would, who would take on such work like that if it was made available. And a lot of uh, people are coming to me about this problem, especially in a time where uh, we have just had a major recession and many people are not back to work at all or pulling uh, uh, jobs that are not pulling enough money for them or they would like to moonlight and they see the door closed to them because that industry says we only want to hire non-Jewish workers. And I think it's, uh, we have to start looking again at, at that issue. Uh, there's this famous story with the, the Satma Rebbe where uh, the, the man came, he wanted a bracha, and the, the, the Rebbe said, what kind of business are you in? He told him the business, he says, he said, if you hire only Jewish workers, you'll see the bracha. And that, that, that was, that's the way it really, really should be. Uh, and and, and I, I think it's true that the, there are many from people today who will do the physical work. I, I don't know how the dollars, how it works out, but a lot of times these jobs do pay uh, fairly decently, and I maybe mean, not a dishwasher, but uh, some of the other jobs do pay. And it'd be nice to see more more religious people being taken on. It definitely would help a lot in Kashrus, and would help uh, many things from industrial kitchens to smaller caterers to restaurants. Right. The more Jewish people you can get who understand what being kosher and keeping kosher is all about, the more you have a good chance of succeeding. You know what happens in the industry is. Uh, I don't want to take too much time away from you what you were talking about. But what happens in the industry is that they're constantly replacing workers. And every time they get a new worker, he has to be retrained in the kashras. Because the worker has no background on kosher because he's not Jewish. Now we're telling him separate this, separate that. It takes days. The, the, the time that is wasted in, in, the, in dealing with the kosher issue has a tremendous amount of time. And then, of course, all the mistakes occur in the learning curve, the first uh, weeks or days or whatever it is. And in a summer camp, where the whole camp is only there for a few months, or two months, by the time you train them, he's already out. And, and, and sometimes in the middle of the summer, you have to get rid of somebody that wasn't acting properly. you got to hire a new guy. That's a very good point, by the way. I remember a very funny story in relation to that, but it is true, a caterer who is able to keep his staff year in, year out, for quite a number of years, is able to teach even somebody who's not Jewish all the nuances of keeping kosher properly. One time I was doing a hotel for Passover, and one of the jobs we had was the kasha, the chicken liver, for the, you know, for the chopped liver for Pesach, the, uh, the cook who was about a 20, who worked 20 years for this particular caterer, he came over to me, called me over and said, hey rabbi, I don't like the way they're kashering those livers, you better get over there and keep an eye on them. <laughs> so it, it, is, it is possible to have a professional chef, and it's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch like that, Timus Kfeila, right. it is possible to have a dedicated staff, but like you just said, Rabbi Wickley, you have to keep them on staff, and they have to be taught all the nuances of what they have to keep an eye out, and that definitely would also help, but it, like you said, in a camp, you usually do not have that. It would have to be a caterer who keeps the staff on for quite a number of years. Let's go through that list again. We started it and we got the sidetrack. The
The first one we mentioned was about the uh, checking out the shipments when they arrive. The second was to ensure that all the, the utensils color marketing. are yeah, color marketing, really sure they're clearly three. marked. What's a, number three? A uniform color code. Unfortunately, sometimes they decide to switch in, in <laughs> midstream. I actually was once in a kitchen where blue was for flashings. Wow. I don't understand what their cheshben was, but wow. it, it, I, I, I could not understand that, <laughs> why blue and green would be flashings. But it has to be a uniform color code. Number four? The, uh, the workers, whether they be uh, Jewish and non-Jewish, have to understand all the color markings. They have to know which sinks are dedicated for washing that particular type of utensils, the dairy sinks meat sinks, especially if they're in close proximity. Unfortunately, most camps and most yeshivas don't always have the sinks well separated enough. That's a big must, but unfortunately it doesn't always happen. So it's very easy for a worker to bring a whole slew of Fleischiger utensils and dump it accidentally in the Milchiger sink. And uh -huh. then you have to deal with all the questions that come up with such a thing. It's not hard to fix up, but it's not something you want happening on a steady basis. The, uh, you have to worry about, if there are workers who are not Jewish, about all the halachas of Bishal Akum. It's unfortunate, this is much more common than people realize. I once had a friend who went with his wife to a very, very, very famous, very respected restaurant. And it was, it was a very crowded Sunday. And they were seated right near the kitchen door. So they ordered, they ordered something to eat, and the, it had to be a dairy restaurant. So they were waiting a long time. It was very crowded. It's a very big strain on the staff. So finally the waiter opened the door of the kitchen and called to the cook, uh, what happened to the balances already? I've been waiting so long. <laughs> so the worker screamed back at the, at the waiter, cool it, man. This grill keeps going out. I have ate it five times already. <laughs> so the couple who knew better just oh got up and walked God. out. Oh my the goodness. only person uh, who was in the whole restaurant was the mashkiach was up front operating the cash register. Wow. Wow. That could bring us to a whole different topic of our restaurants if we have time. Yeah, but, that, but, but that's a really classic uh, problem. Yes. They, they want the mashkiach to be quote, a working Rashkia. They wanted to do work that's valuable to them in their time. And unfortunately, that kind of work, that kind of involvement, takes away what they could do effectively for Kashmir. It's a major, major problem, Rabbi Wickler. Major. I once called up a very, very, very respected organization to get somebody a job as a mashkiach. And somebody who knew his stuff. The first question they asked me was, can he work the cash register? Right. I'll repeat that for those who are listening to the show. The first question they ask when hiring a mashkiach is, can he work the cash register? Now, if you're busy working in the cash register, a big responsibility, by the way, the, uh, how can you keep an Your eye on the cash register? Your mind is on, like driving. Your mind is on the road. It's a big responsibility. You can't take the time out to go anyplace else. He can't walk away from the cash register. Mm -hmm. He's got to be relieved every once in a while. But how in the world can he possibly be on top of what's going on in mm -hmm. the establishment? Crazy, mamish. But it seems that that very much is the norm. A lot of times they have him doing something like that, where he's totally away from the area of the food preparation. 
Very, very hard. What's the list here? We have not. We got through to the uh, four, uh, five. the Bishalakim yeah. concerns, and of course, when they do the uh, the pot cleaning, it has to be very careful to make sure they're in the right area. Also, the the steel wool gets mixed up. The steel wool is a common thing to scrub greasy pots. They have to have figure out an eitzer to keep the milk of steel wool with the milk of pots and the flesh of steel with the flesh of pots. I just want to uh, reiterate something you said earlier because not everybody's going to grasp it. I don't think we went into it the way you did in the article. In these places, a camp and sometimes in the yeshiva, they're preparing more than one meal at the same time. That's when, right. If they're preparing a milchika meal and a fleshika meal, let's say they're serving breakfast and they're preparing something for lunch, or they're preparing lunch and they're, they're preparing supper ahead, part of the supper ahead, so it ends up they're actually using the milchika and fleshika areas at the same time. And that creates even more confusion. The major, major, because they have to produce not too far away, sometimes as little as six feet away, milchika and fleshika at the same time. It's a tremendous challenge. And it's too much to expect for the non-Jewish workers, or even sometimes younger, from kids who work in the who work in training in the kitchen, to be totally responsible. You need right. a mashgiach who really could keep things separate. It's just too much to expect otherwise. Well, we got through the first five, which is when we review now, and then I think we've got six, ten, right after my. Uh, by my announcement here, uh, number one was to examine the shipments. Number two was that all utensils are clearly marked. Number three, that there's a uniform color code. Number four, that the workers are familiar with the color code and be able to spot the utensils in the sinks, etc. Number five, that they're aware of the rules about lighting a, a, a pile of light and that they can't relight themselves, mixing meat and milk, and bringing in their own food, things of that nature. We'll, we'll do number six through ten in just a moment. As you know, the sponsor of this show has been for almost three years we've been on the air has been Glockmark, which is conveniently located at 1205 Avenue M. When you think of Glockmark, think of price, service, convenience, and quality. Whether you shop for a few items or for a full wagon load, you can save plenty of money by shopping at Glockmart. Their weekly specials run from Wednesday to Tuesday, and you can see them on their website or on What's on Sale. That's W-A-T-S-O-N-S-A-L-E. Uh, and on on Thursday and Friday, you can always get a chicken special for four at $19.99. Includes filter fish soup, a rotisserie chicken, potato with luxury kugel, and a one pound of cholent, enough for four people. At Glockmart, convenience comes in two packages, parking and time. You save plenty of time by using their valet parking service. Just pull into Glockmart from the East 12th Street entrance, and they'll park the car for you and have it ready to load up with those all those special items you purchase in the store. And at Glockmart, the quality of the meats is A1. With kosher certification for both the Star K and the Barakashta Flatbush, with base Yosef meats and with expert Nikor, at Glockmart, you are getting quality kashras. Glockmart is at 1205 Avenue M, meaning your shopping needs is their top priority. If you meet Dove in Glockmart, Tell them you heard about Glockmart on Cautious on the Air over J Root Radio. And I was just in uh, Glockmart the other day, and uh, it was very interesting. A woman came in, and she said, uh, she ran over, I was talking to Dove, who, uh, who owns the store, and the, the woman comes up, she says, Dove, you know, identifies herself, right, hello, Dove. Uh, 
I don't see the chocolate leather. Took two seconds. He got on the phone, called somebody up. It's there. I said to the lady, it's, it's good that you know, you know him. He said, I'm here 30 years. You're shopping for 30 years there. You don't get that everywhere. You don't get that personal touch, that personal involvement and the care for the, for the shopper the way you, you have it over in a place like that. It's serving 35 years if they're serving the area here. Amazing. And you can mention also, I don't know if people realize that they're the only butcher in this area that does everything from scratch right. still. They right. get the meat from J.W. Truth and yeah. the Lushen of the Mashkiach. They get it warm from J.W. Truth and they have a Mashkiach who's there to meet the delivery and the Mashkiach makes sure the delivery is okay. Then he proceeds to do the Malicha, the Hadocha, Malicha, Malicha Hadocha and the trabering right then and there. There's something you don't find anymore. No, you can't find it. I, I remember, I've been observed it there many times. And they have like an open store whenever I wanted to come by and see or to show some of my Talmidim. When I was learning Hilchas Malicha with the, my Talmidim, I would take them over there. And uh, I, I met some of the famous people in Kashvas uh, in the back, watching the Nikor and watching the uh, watching the salt thing. I was there with Rabbi Moshe Heinemann, and I was there with uh, Rabbi Belsky a number of times. Different people observed at the same time. It's it's a unique place as far as Brooklyn goes today. Yeah. Things changed yeah. in those 35 years, right? Yeah, very much. All right, so we go back to our list. We still haven't finished our list. Okay. This is the short list. <laughs> anyway, we had number one to five, number six. Go ahead. Right. One of, one of the one of the things that happen in close quarters is that it's not always clear what areas are designated for working for milchik and fleshik. Now, it would be better if all the camps and all the yeshivas would just somehow design their kitchens from the very beginning to be totally separated in the milchiks and totally separate from the fleshik, and no confusion if this counter area it should be used in milchik of fleshik. And let's add on one more point, that there has to be a sufficient size, because if they're in, sometimes the need is greater than the size available, and they go ahead and spread out into the next section, that's the killer, because, they, because even if you have a dedicated milchiks and a dedicated fleshiks, but you sometimes have such a crowd, and you need to prep, and you extend yourself into the other side, so really you don't have to accept the kitchens. One of the reasons this happened, Rabbi Wickler, is because almost all the camps in the Catskills took over pre-existing camps. Usually they were non-Jewish, or pre-existing hotels that were not Jewish. We even have some yeshivas in New York who took over pre-existing buildings with pre-existing kitchens. And then, over the years, the camps grew, the yeshivas grew. So the, the, the kitchen from the very beginning was Not inadequate. Right. It was What's totally it? inadequate to separate the milk inflation. Wow. So surely, after they grew over the years, there was a lot of uh, inadequate space areas, and that's where the overlap happens. And that's where you have people putting down hot Fleischer army pots on top of Milchiger counters. Wow. It would be good if, if each yeshiva or camp could rebuild or remodel their kitchens to avoid that, but most of them but have they not. Don't, and if you don't, then you have to have the proper supervision. We started this discussion about needing right. a mishkiach in some of these places, yeshivas and camps, and my experience is that, yes, if you want to use 
the dairy section for prepping the fleshika meal, it's doable if you if you have proper supervision. But if you're going to leave non-Jewish workers alone in a dairy kitchen prepping for fleshika or vice versa, and because you're busy in the other kitchen doing the actual cooking, it's impossible for that chef to be doing that kind of work that's spread out over so much area. Right, and it's too much to expect the chef to every single minute keep an eye on it. You need a mashkiach who say, whoa, you're putting it down in the wrong place. That's what, in a nice way, of course. Right. You need a, somebody there. Right. Every yeshiva, every camp needs somebody there, just like a catering hall needs it. But here it's more emergency, more of an emergency because you have milvig and fleshigs usually only a few feet apart. And therefore, without a mashkiach, he- you're heading to a disaster area. Also, I want to mention that when we talk about a chef, a cook, we're not talking about the way it is in the non-Jewish world where they have a head chef and he may be just like a director running from one place to the other watching everybody. He may be really the mashkiach for the non-kosher kitchen making sure everything gets done. But our kind of chef is a hands-on man. He's, he's helping in the actual preparation, and he's putting stuff on, he may have workers helping him, but he's not going far away. He's not somebody who's in, uh, going over the whole facility just the way a mashkiach would do to, to supervise. He's somebody who's in it and, it, and that's why I think it's very hard for him to supervise at the same time. But definitely, it's a very hard job to be a chef. The, the men and ladies who do the cooking, they work very, very hard. They're under a lot of time pressure, and it seems like no matter how early they start, they're still under pressure, under the gun. Many yeshivos have different shifts. There's sometimes one shift for the younger grades, another shift for the middle grades, then comes the masifta, then comes the base medrash. It's a very hard job. It's just too much to expect of even the firmest or best chef to also put on the hat of a mashkiach. And that's the whole problem that started off this whole show with <laughs> the yeshiva that does not have a mashkiach is heading for trouble. Anyway, before we go on, just let me remind our listeners that you're listening to Kashas on the Air. I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine, and my guest tonight, Ephraim Israelowitz, uh, who has been ed- helping to educate the uh, kosher consumer for the last several decades here in Flatbush in both uh, writing and uh, uh, for, for the, Jew, the Yeshiva Brooklyn Observer, also for Kashmir's Magazine, and answering questions on the phone for people who, uh, who, who uh, gotten through to him and, and needed some help, and he's directed them in the right direction. And so we're continuing now with our discussion about summertime Kashmir's, which also ties into yeshiva kitchens and catering facilities, etc. We're up to, we're going through 10 things, and we're up to tell us about the checklist, maybe the 10 commandments of uh, kosher catering, and we're up to number seven. Go ahead. Uh, number seven is really a technicality, but it's an important technicality. Caterers and yeshivos and camps have certain types of kalim that are unique to mass production facilities, like, for example, racks. You see them sometimes. You go to a bakery that allows you to get fresh baked off the racks. Now, a lot of confusion can occur, and kashrasidus, when those racks hold trays called sheet pans, they can get mixed up very easily. For some reason, 
on sheet pans, the paint comes off even quicker than on pots, and it's not unusual to start using Fleischer sheet pans that, that hamburgers were made on and to use accidentally for pizza. And when you look at the sheet pans, you could barely tell if you really got the right sheet pan. And one of the points that you made in your article, and I remember seeing it myself in, in different establishments, is that these sheet pans are stacked up a mile high and, and because they're, they're so much in use that there, I don't know the numbers of how many are stacked up, but I've, I've seen them really stacked up high. And it's so easy for one or two or three to be the wrong ones. Yes, unfortunately. Because you don't see it, it's not exposed. You don't see the entire sheet pan. Sheet pan's only about an inch high, and maybe an inch and a half, and, and, they're, and they're one into the other. So you don't see the area that would be color-coded. It's easy for it to hide in a pile of sheet pans and get used, and the non-Jewish worker, which we unfortunately have too many of them, they're not going to spot those differences. It's very hard to spot. Sheet pans, uh, and they use, uh, uh, this is real, real problems with Basel Bukhalov, because they used to make hamburgers, and they used to make square pizza. Pan, uh, sheet and they put pizza. it in the oven, mm -hmm. and it is, it's so much easier for the thing to cover the coloring to come off. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly being washed and used. Very and here you have really serious Basel Bukhalov problems. Right. I mean, serious. Hard to cash, hard to fix up. Now, the, uh, the bakery is in a camp. Most people don't realize this, that it's a big job, both in a yeshiva and that does baking. A lot of yeshivas do not do baking for this reason, but camps do a lot of baking. It's very difficult to keep a bakery truly of because usually the bakery is in a smaller area of the kitchen. You, don't have, you can't spread out usually in the bakery area. It's very rare you'll find a camp kitchen that has a really large size bakery the way it should have. Unless what is a bakery? I mean, I know it's an oven. You, have, you need certain type of ovens yeah. that help produce cakes. Right. Sometimes you need convection ovens. You need special mixers. Uh -huh. you need, the utensils in a bakery look very different. But if you're producing large amounts of breads, large amounts of cakes, and most camps prefer to do it that way, than to go to the expense oh, it's much of cheaper. having it brought in. Now, unfortunately, like we said before, since most camps have inherited preformed kitchens, so it was no big deal if the bakery was just stuck in a corner. The problem is, is that it's surrounded by milchig and fleischig utensils on all sides. So you keep a bakery par of, depending on the, the camp, kitchen, how it's set up, Again, the one or two that are set up from scratch have a, a whole room, separate room for baking, but most of them don't. The few yeshivas that do bake also do not have se a separate bakery, so it's a challenge to keep the bakery par of. The reason why you want to keep the bakery par of is sometimes you make extra breads or extra, extra uh, cakes that you want to freeze and you want to be able to serve both of a milchaga meal and a fleishaga meal and snack time in the afternoon. So it becomes a, a unique challenge. This is very unique to camps. It might be relevant to certain yeshivas, but to keep the bakery par becomes a whole challenge. I a saw one, challenge. One, one camp, I mentioned it once on the radio, that I, I saw a, one, in one of the camps, a Hasidish camp, and they, they, their, their baking for Shabbos was always on Fleshka Caleb. I'm sorry, Dairy Caleb. Dairy Caleb. They used the sheet pans, dairy sheet pans, they made sure they were clean, and they used it 
and it may have even been a Ben Yamo, I'm not sure if not, and they would serve it, the cake, after the main meal had been bust off, Friday night, for Shabbos, so that this way uh, you wouldn't be having that together with meat. And it was only a knot by knot, it was only made on their equipment. Their tea was also made in a big pot that was used to make cereal with milk. So they had, the tea was made in the dairy equipment, the cake was made on dairy equipment, and it was served at the Fleischke meal for dessert after they had bust off the Fleischkes. And that's all because they probably inherited, when they opened up the camp, they inherited a preformed kitchen. It was a small and kitchen, and there wasn't room for the bakery. Right. Area. It's very important, really, whenever the yeshiva can redesign a kitchen, if they want to do baking, to try to keep it par. It would be if camps could do it, but usually they can't. Usually they, they end up just working with what they have right. because it's only eight weeks or seven, whatever it is. But it's not the ideal. Now, of course, if you have a mashkiach there, he could work hard to make sure it's truly par. What are the last two, we have, the last two ideas here? The, oh, so number eight is the bakery. Number nine, the, you have to have... Uh, some plan to get rid of insects from from the food. Now, there's two two ways of understanding that. Number one, summertime vegetables have more infestation in it. Now, of course, some camps have taken the step that even though it, it costs them much more, they do purchase positive and bodic. However, there are a lot of camps. I haven't taken the survey, but maybe you, Rabbi Wickler, could do it just to get an <laughs> idea. Some camps do not want to go to the expense of purchasing uh, positive and bodeg. They will still want to get whole cases, very inexpensive, to get in the summer, to get cases of cabbages you can get for 19 cents a pound. The, you can get cases of lettuce for each head of lettuce would be less than a dollar. So there are two problems with that. Number one, sometimes it's industrial quality, grade C. There's a grading system on veggies, double AA, B and C. A lot of the stuff that hits the camps and oh, all the institutions, hospitals, nursing, have a grade C because it doesn't have to look pretty. It doesn't have to be on the shelf where the person has to pass by and say, oh, this is horrible. I'm not taking this one. You know, they don't care. So one of the, the fact, grade C receives less care, but also less less uh, spraying and less care for insect holes and insects because it's only going to go into an uh, industrial pot. They don't have to uh, pass by an inspecting shopper. However, that's a big challenge. The infestation levels can be very high on industrial veggies. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you really need somebody who knows how to check vegetables. Secondly, insects come in from the outside in camp. You could do the best salad if you're going to leave it around too long. You're going to get a lot of fleas into the salad. So, and all the other insects also. So, and a lot of times the salad can be made two, three, four hours early. Enough time for insects. They don't knock. They just come in right. and get into the salad. You need and them. They leave it outside sometimes. They don't put it in the refrigerator. It has to be covered very carefully, which they don't do, or it has to be put into the fridge. And unless you have a really good system to avoid, I was once watching somebody make kokish cake and flies landed on the kosher cake it got just mixed oh. right into the oh. batter I'm sorry if I'm killing anybody's appetite it's okay. dinner hour I won't ask you details on where but that occurred you have Shiloh Zaberia in there you know, if they don't get dissolved 
but it, you need a, a really a mashkiach. It's worth having a mashkiach just to separate the bus of a chov and just to keep the bugs out. Right. Now, the last one, supervise the canteen. This is way overlooked many times. Right. Somebody runs the canteen as a concession, pays the camp, and they can be selling things that are totally unreliable, that, that don't even meet basic kashra standards, like basic OU standards. I once uh, walked into a canteen, and they had, they had the candies with just a K on it, the uh, which who's giving the K on it? They, oh, they heard it's good. Somebody told them it's good. They had uh, a brand of potato chips that has both an OU and a less, a much less reliable supervision side by side. They didn't notice because they thought, oh, this company is all OU. No, they also had a company that makes OU, but they happen to have another plant far away that makes large chips. They have both of them on the shelf by accident. Wow. So wow. now it's obvious the other one had no OU. It's the same brand name, same style packaging. It's not the OU's fault. You have to look for the OU. So even though maybe one of the kids is running this thing, or yeah, some guy's in for fun, or for concessions, paying money for yeah. it, and, and really it's the responsibility of the camp and a mashkia or something to, to overlook and to make sure right. that there's a standard being achieved over there as well. Right. The mashkia has to just check the shipments of candy when they come in. And then once in a while, just make sure that nothing else somehow drifted or snuck onto the shelves. So, Rabbi Israelowitz, let me just sum up what the 10 points that we had for our listeners, even though we covered a lot more than 10 things today. Uh, number one, examine all shipments upon arrival. Number two, ensure that all utensils are clearly marked with spray paint or some other way. Number three, Ensure a uniform color code like red for meat and blue for dairy and, and green for pyrova. Number four, orient the workers to color coding and to what to do if they spot improperly marked utensils. And number five, observe non-Jewish workers to ensure that they do not reignite the pilot light, mix the meat and milk, bring their own food, etc. Number six, designate clearly all work areas as either dairy, meat, or parva. Number seven, oversee the use of separate trays or carts to transfer the dirty pots to pot washer area or to send out portions. I don't think we went over that thoroughly here. And number eight, keep the bakery parva with its own parva utensils. Nine, establish and monitor proper procedures for eliminating insect infestation and for separating challah. We also didn't go into that one. And number 10, to supervise the canteen. These were some of 10 of the points that we had sort of summed up on that lengthy article, which went off of pages and pages in our magazine in 1987, where it first appeared. Uh, we have only a few minutes left, and I, I'd like you to tell us uh, a little bit about what you, your experience is with consumers and some of the needs, some of the difficulties that they have and how you've been able to help them. Well, by and far, the two major topics that I receive phone calls about are about products that show up on the shelves in our supermarkets here in New York City that the people do not recognize and have never seen before. And the second issue that people call about the most is how to identify an acceptable restaurant 
to eat in. I'm going to start with the second one first because the first topic of identifying new products that sometimes are hard to uh, figure out if they're legitimate or not, Rabbi Wickler deals with at length in the Kashrus Magazine and the Kashrus Monthly. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you don't know what you're missing. So, but that'll leave to Rabbi Wickler to tell you the details how you can subscribe. Well, just do it now because uh, you, you mentioned it already. Uh, we're having a special. It's going on a little bit longer. It's uh, an unbelievable special that we call the J-Deal or the J-Root special because we have it on J-Deal. And that is that you can have one year subscription, which includes everything, the $39 value uh, for $15. The normal price is $25, but it, the J-Deal is $15. You get the super kosher supervision guide, which is now $1,269. Wow. Uh, when, when is it coming out? When and, do we expect that? I'm looking weeks, forward to getting my copy. It is at the printer now. Okay. Two or three weeks. And uh, then we also put out the Kosher Travel Guide. And we have five issues of the magazine in the course of the year. So we get all of that, a $39 value. That's more valuable than that. But <laughs> yeah. $15. All you got to do is call Kashrus at 718 336-8544 again 718-336-8544 or you can email us at kashrus k-a-s-h-r-u-s at aol.com so I don't want to interrupt you we have no, only about two minutes also, left oh so, two minutes, okay yeah. so let's hear about acceptable restaurants Okay. They, if I had to in two minutes give one message over to your listening audience is you cannot identify an acceptable restaurant just based on who's the hashkacha, who is the certificate in the window. I'll explain to you very quickly why. The no matter who gives the hashkacha on the restaurant, you are depending upon the individual who is on premises from opening to closing to take care of the kashras. The kashras organization just gives a list of acceptable products and they send in their own mashkiach to look things over once every three weeks or once every four weeks. So you're telling me that every establishment, whether it's a mashkiach tamidi or it's a owner that is Shomish Shabbos or it's a Shomish Shabbos person working for the store, that's the real bottom line in terms of whether or not I should eat here. Correct. If you have confidence in the person who's the owner who's there all day, if you have confidence in the manager who's there all day, if you have confidence in the person designated to keep an eye on things, then you could eat there and you just have to check to make sure that that organization giving the ashkocha on the certificate takes the products in that you personally would feel uh, very comfortable with. If so in other words, I have to do something. I can't just look at the sign now. That's right. I can't read the, uh, the ads in the paper and look at the, uh, the logos associated. I should actually do something. What would you like me to do before I eat there? Number one <laughs> is make sure it's a restaurant that's been in business a long time. Very a restaurant good. that's been around five, six, seven, eight years already has proven that it's worthy of keeping their hashkacha. Excellent. That brings to point number two. Make sure they have not switched hashkachas frequently. <laughs> it's an alarm signal. If they keep switching hashkachas, 
that something is really, really wrong. Number three. So number three, you really have to familiarize yourself with who is on premises. Until you do that, you have to stick to very innocuous foods that cannot be problematic. There are not that many of them, but a slice of pizza is usually a safe go. But there's but not. Rabbi, let me tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you. The, a, a full-fledged restaurant has different shifts, and it may even have. Uh, sometimes they they have three different mashgichim. Usually it's two, right? A, sh- a shift A and shift B. But sometimes there's a third mashgiach. Sometimes it's no, only half a day. They have two mashgiachim, or sometimes there's a, a third mashgiach because he's filling for the weekend, certain times, whatever it is. So, how am I going to handle that? Well, as I mentioned, the article that's a major, major issue in the Catskills because they stay open till till two, three in the morning sometimes, and the owner is not going to be there from ten in the morning to two in the morning. It's a little bit of a problem in certain restaurants in Brooklyn that stay open very late. A 12-hour restaurant, technically, one manager can handle. I, Ephraim uh, Isvalewitz, our time is up. I want to thank you very much for joining me for this session. And we have to do another one very soon because I see we didn't even scratch the surface. What you have to say is so much and so valuable. I hope that our listeners will hear it many times in different forms. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. And I wish everybody had and a good kosher New Year. Absolutely. And this is Rabbi Yosef Wickler wishing you a great week. And we hope to hear from you next week. Hopefully, I will be on with we able to take questions as well. This week, I had to be away. Thank you very much.